2: It's Tuesday, September 20th. I'm producer Victor Wright in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Intensive parenting, also commonly known as helicopter parenting, is the dominant model of raising children right now. But does that mean it's a good model to follow? It turns out that research shows this style, one in which parents overextend themselves to ensure their child's success, may lead to parental burnout and even harm a child's competency and mental health. Elliot Haspel, early childhood policy expert and contributor to The Atlantic, joins Oscar Ramirez for more on intensive parenting and how to get away from it. Next, it's the topic that no one wants to talk about, death, or more specifically, what happens to our bodies after we die. Instead of choosing a traditional casket burial, Many Americans are deciding to opt for cremations, with 56% of Americans being cremated. By 2040, that number may rise to up to 80%. The number of people who are deciding on green burials has also increased. A couple of examples for these green burials is having the body buried in biodegradable containers or even reducing the body into soil that can be used for gardening. Karen Heller, National features writer at the Washington Post joins Oscar Ramirez for more on why Americans are moving away from traditional burials. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
3: Now, kids are potentially more overparented than they have been in the past. And so, my sort of point here is we need to figure out something to replace intensive parenting instead of just telling parents, don't do that.
1: Joining us now is Elliot Haspel. He's an early childhood policy expert and author of Crawling Behind, America's Childcare Crisis and How to Fix It. Thanks for joining us, Elliot.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You wrote an interesting uh, article about intensive parenting. A lot of people might know this a little bit more commonly, you know, helicopter parenting, bulldozer parenting. I think there's a uh, snowplow parenting. You know, everything has its kind of a uh, funny name to it. But basically where, you know, parents are overextending themselves, right? Trying to maximize their child's future success by just being involved in every way possible along the way. And you write about how, you know, this is kind of the dominant method in the country right now. And maybe we should try to move away from that. So tell us a little bit more.
3: The challenge is that intensive parenting doesn't actually get us the goals that we want. It's counterproductive. The idea is we want our kids to be successful in an uncertain world. And so we're going to kind of clench really tight around them. What the evidence shows us, raft of evidence, almost any way you look at it is, it actually ends up hurting children's mental health, especially when they become adolescents and young adults. And it really stresses parents out and actually stressed out parents are not generally uh, super effective parents, and so what I'm writing here is saying there's lots of evidence, there's been evidence for years and years and years that intensive parenting can be very counterproductive, but it's not actually causing any changes. Uh, there's a writer, another writer for the Atlantic, Kate Julian, who talks about how actually now kids are potentially more overparented than they have been in the past, and so my sort of point here is we need to figure out something to replace intensive parenting instead of just telling parents don't do that.
1: Quick question here, though, right? If, if we have research saying, you know, it's not the most beneficial thing, why is it the most dominant kind of uh, uh, form of parenting right now?
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's fueled... Right. So it's what I would consider it maladaptive. What that means is it's logical. You can create a story by which it makes sense, but actually it doesn't work. And so, you know, it appears to be a suggest a response to this anxiety. And there's lots of reasons behind it but to sort of distill it. Right. The future looks pretty uncertain. The future looks pretty uncertain for your kids. What you're going to do is try to control everything you can control to give them the best chance of success. And so there's an appeal to it, right? Like, I might not be able to control climate change and I might not be able to control income inequality, but I, I can do everything in my power to smooth the path so that my kid can get to, to a good college. And that's the way the logic goes. Uh, and so it's very seductive in a way. And it's not until you kind of go a few sentences further into the thought that you realize actually that's not, uh, not getting us where we want to go.
1: What are some of these new methods that we can uh, maybe replace this with? You have a couple of different ideas. You know, one is obviously for the parents themselves, right? You need parents to prioritize themselves in a way as well, uh, get adequate amounts of sleep. That way they're a little more happy and fulfilled and that will pass along to the children and a couple of other suggestions too.
3: Yeah. So my read on uh, the whole of uh, the parenting and child outcome literature is that we actually need to reject the idea that there's like this system or method that we need to be moving forward on when we think about how to parent. But actually, we can kind of calm down and realize that so long as we're providing reasonable amounts of love and support and care, and obviously there are going to be times when we need to lean in more, times when we need to lean out. But if we, we broadly do what this, uh, this pediatrician and psychologist from the, the 40s and 50s called good enough parenting. That doesn't mean it's mediocre. It doesn't right. mean it's apathetic. It means there's literally a point at which if you try to continue to optimize, you're going to do more harm than good. And so finding that that sort of good enough point, it does. It does mean that like we want to think about being a relatively whole, calm, happy person will generally make you a better parent giving the children, you know, a room to fail within reason actually helps them grow their competence. And so my piece is really saying, let's reject, let's not just say no more intensive parenting. Now we're going to do gentle parenting or no more intensive parenting. Now we're going to do the REI parenting. It's not, we can't keep replacing These models and other models we have to do is reject the fundamental premise that there is a model out there um, and understand what actually drives effective child development is this sort of metaphor of really being more of a gardener, uh, you know, just setting the conditions, reaching that good enough point and not striving for perfection.
1: Yeah. Another way to kind of think about it that you mentioned in the article is thinking of different aspects of it as as dials, you know, dials, you can ramp up all the way to 10, some that you can leave down to one and, and, you know, displaying love, spending quality time. These things are, should be high on that priority list. Uh, You know, other things you write non-serious problems for their kids, things that they should learn how to handle themselves. You know, that could be dialed down a little bit lower because you shouldn't, you know, again, to the helicopter pairing, the intensive parenting, you should try to steer away from that, give them a little bit of independence and, and, and learn it for themselves.
3: That's absolutely right. You know, it's uh, and everyone has their own values as a parent or as a family, and everyone's situation is similar. Like, I'm certainly, if you, you know, I'm a parent of neurotypical children. If you have a child with a significant developmental, you know, issue, like, that's going to look different, the kind of inputs that you need. But yeah, you know, broadly speaking, I think we can think about, like, what are these guiding principles of parenting that will help us make these decisions? Should I sign my kid up for that? And then another extra clear do I need to be doing their homework, you know, for them tonight? Or should I go out with a, you know, go talk to a friend on the phone tonight? There are these sort of micro level decisions. Uh, you know, I think we can get in our head about them. But if we understand that actually not helping your kid with your homework one night is not going to uh, foreclose their future of getting into, uh, into college, uh, which I think it sometimes can feel like that much pressure, uh, it can help us all start to, start to calm down.
1: Elliot Haspel, early childhood policy expert and author of Crawling Behind, America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks so much
0: for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
3: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
2: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is... Is Uncanny USA? He says somebody's in the house, and I screamed.
0: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
4: And look, like return to natural burial, which is you know green burials where people are buried in a shroud or in a biodegradable container like a wicker a really beautiful big wicker basket which is sort of going back to how people were buried for
1: centuries joining us now is karen heller national features writer at the washington post thanks for joining us karen oh thank you well let's talk about death and burials and cremation it's a uh, super interesting what's happening the shift that's been going on the rise of cremation we're right now in 2020 of Americans who died were cremated. So that is the most popular way of uh, final disposition. They call it
4: disposition, right, yeah.
1: As the funeral industry calls it. And, you know, for years, I mean, it just kind of, you think of the traditional burial in a casket going into the ground. Who knew that this had started to change? The trend was going on before the pandemic. You know, things kind of got accelerated there a little bit too. But here we are. So tell us a little bit more about it, Karen. So cremation is
4: been available in the United States actually since the late 19th century, but Americans just didn't embrace the practice. And in uh, there was a very big book published in 1963 called The American Way of Death, which was a searing expose of the funeral industry that really argued for cremation. And yet Americans still didn't really want to do this. That year, oddly enough, a lot of people don't know this, the Catholic Church even said that it was okay for Catholics to be cremated. But people just were uncomfortable with and continued to have, you know, uh, these very elaborate caskets to buy burial plots, you know, which are all far more expensive or can be than cremation. So it's really accelerated the last few years.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the thoughts that a lot of people start having as they get older. You know, I got to prepare for myself, for my own burial, so I don't leave that burden, the cost of it, to the family. Uh, You know, it's a real concern for a lot of people. And, and, uh, you know, just talking about the trajectory of this, some estimates say by 2040, four out of five Americans are projected to choose cremation. 80% of people will be going that way because it's important let's talk a little bit about the costs and how that works. And and, because there's so many interesting angles to all of this, but let's talk about cost first and and what people see, because it is really high.
4: Right. And I mean, and by the way, the numbers that the funeral industry gave me, I think they're pretty low. I mean, a lot of these funeral homes are in, you're not in LA, they're in smaller towns where it's a lot less expensive. But yes, a cost is certainly a big driver of this because, you know, when you do a casket burial, you need to find, you need to purchase space in the ground. You need to purchase the caskets. The caskets could be thousands and thousands of dollars. A funeral director is involved. And, you know, there are a lot of other costs like embalming, lining. It's not particularly great for the environment. A lot of people think of this. And it's taking up in, in big cities, it's taking up valuable land.
1: Yeah, so the median price of a funeral with burial and viewing, and obviously this depends, uh, differs regionally, but oh, yeah. it's about seven thousand eight hundred and forty-eight dollars. The cremation itself, just the straight cremation, is two thousand five hundred and fifty. So right there, you're, I mean, that's a big price difference.
4: Right. Although they do, and that's a median cost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they
1: do also do, uh, I guess, a cremation with viewing and funeral and burial with all of that too. That brings you up to about almost seven thousand dollars. So it's very comparable to the traditional casket burial.
4: Correct. And a lot of people do do that. The Catholic Church, for example, which, you know, I said uh, does allow for cremation, wants a priest involved and wants. The remains buried. So, you know, a smaller casket or container, an urn or whatever, into the ground. So, there are many people practicing in religion and also Judaism and Muslims do not believe in cremation. So, yes, there's still people who are doing that. Yeah.
1: Let's talk a little bit of what you heard about why people are trending this way, the changes. A lot of what uh, you've been hearing is that people want different options. And people uh, beyond that, people want to create new traditions that, you know, they want to do it their own way. They don't want to do this traditional thing. And, and, and then on top of that, also how families have changed, like they don't want to deal with the days long uh, event of the viewing, the burial, you know, the parties after, you know, they want it done quicker as well.
4: Correct. I mean, so one of the things is we've become a far more secular Country, there are far fewer people who are regularly attending a house of worship. And then we're also a very transient country. You know, many families have members all over the country. So think about a burial. If, let's say, you live in LA, but your children are all over the country, burying somebody in a plot in Los Angeles and people are elsewhere, they may never visit. Whereas if you do cremation and you decide that everybody wants a little bit of the remains and puts them in an urn or a box in the house or buries them in the backyard, That can happen. But I I know that, you know, like my grandparents are buried in Chicago and I've been there twice and none of their descendants live there anymore. So I think that's a consideration. Like, why would I be doing this? And what is the purpose of this? I also think we're pretty much, you know, a lot of us are death phobic. We're, We're all about living longer, healthier, but we don't actually talk a lot in this country about the inevitable which is that we're going to die.
1: You're, I mean, 100% right. You know, people, it happens to everybody, right? But people don't want to talk Correct. about it, don't want to Don't want to think about it. And it's scary. You don't want to know what happens right. when you're gone. And, and in this sense, doing the cremation kind of shortens that. You don't have to go through the death process for somebody else for that much longer. And when we look at right. other countries, you know, we're talking about, how things have, it's 56% now in the U.S. You know, in other countries like Japan, it's almost a rate of 100%. So we are far behind in, in that.
4: Yes, in many countries. And and one of the things that during the pandemic, of course, we had a lot of death and we had to think about it. And a lot of people did have to be cremated, particularly in places like New York, where there were so many bodies, you know, they were stacked up. It was just horrifying. But I think so, in a way, we are thinking more about it. I also thought about this for the article, because we're going to have more death because of the baby boom. There's expected the Social Security Administration projects that we're going to have 25% more deaths just because of the aging baby boom. And there are a lot of people who don't love what cremation... Cremation can be very special and moving and important. You know, you, there are people who do destination scattering of ashes in places that matter to the family and the deceased. Right. But they're also now beginning to explore other alternatives that are more environmentally friendly and, and also are very meaningful. And like a return to natural burial, which is, you know, green burials where people are buried in a shroud or in a biodegradable container like a wicker a really beautiful big wicker basket which is sort of going back to how people were buried for centuries before there was a funeral industry.
1: Yeah, let's let's explore so, that a little bit more because Sure. The traditional casket burial, even depending on how the casket is lined, sometimes it's lined with metal, things like that, that can uh, affect the environment in a certain way. Even the cremation affects it a certain way, and people are Correct. kind of more conscious of of the environment and all this, and they want to go on their own terms. And so there is this kind of rise of green burials and different things. There's uh, at least one, two, three, four different types of alternatives that you mentioned in the article.
4: Correct. Even the making of the caskets is not great for the environment. And then embalming fluids, which are also, by the way, used in cremation. Some people are embalmed before they're cremated. So a natural green burial is really something that has already caught on. There's quite a in, out in Los Angeles. There are quite a few places now that have it. And the funeral industry is embracing this. They want to serve the customer and the customer is really speaking up about this. They want more choice for a country that you know loves that. So natural Green Burial is already here. And I think more and more cemeteries are going to do it. And, and people really like this idea. The idea that, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that your body returns and is safe and, and good way to the environment. The three states have now approved something called uh, natural organic reduction. Oregon, Washington State and Colorado, and California is trying, by the way, and that is where there's a company out in Washington State called Recompose that basically created this, and it's a 30-day process where the body is put in a container with wood chips and alfalfa, and it basically decomposes. Some people call it human composting, and the body becomes soil, very rich, healthy soil, and that soil is then the family can take part of it, it will fill a flatbed truck. It's a lot of soil, And some people take a bit of it to put in their garden or in the woods to scatter somewhere. And then the rest, they're often giving to a forest or they're giving to um, organic gardeners. So that's new. It hasn't been approved, but many states are trying. There is a, a more environmentally kind of positive process with alkaline hydrolysis, which is a little like the matrix. The body, instead of being burned, it basically melts with alkaline hydrolysis. There are a couple of companies that have created these machines. They are not inexpensive. And the funeral industry is a little worried about this because many funeral homes operate on small margins and their big investments are $174,000. But these machines, which um, have been approved in like 24 states, but only available in about 12, a lot of states are resisting this. The state legislature, it has to pass by the state legislature by Reframing what what cremation actually means, to expand it to being used with water. But this right. is a much better process for the environment, and the body is reduced to sort of a salty powder, like a baking soda. And this is being done a lot more with pets. And again, it doesn't um, use as it doesn't use um, emit greenhouse yeah. gases. It doesn't use fossil fuels, so that's better for the environment. So that's another thing. And then there's something called permission, which is basically freeze drying the body. That's available right now just in Sweden and South Korea, Britain, I think Scotland is on the cusp of of approving that. And so the good news is that people are thinking about this. And I think the more we think about choice and what we want, the more perhaps we'll begin to understand our needs and how we want this final event in life to be honored. Um, I think a lot of people are just so scared. And I'm one of them, by the way, you know, just almost paralyzed by the decision of what to do with a loved one when they die, particularly if they haven't been specific about their request.
1: Karen Heller, National Features writer at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
4: Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much.
2: All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by yours truly, Victor Wright, engineered by Tony Sorrentino, and hosted by Oscar Ramirez. I'm producer Victor Wright, and this was your Daily Dive.